Please turn with me to 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 13 to 25. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. This is the word of the Lord. If you're new or visiting, we've been looking at passages in the Old Testament that demonstrate how God works through brokenness to bring about salvation. And, and how he works in that to build character. It's kind of like a mini theme among this overarching theme that we've had about the Old Testament. But I've got to tell you, passages like today's is really, really uh, they're really, really difficult. You see, David, David was a man after God's own heart. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, his life just completely blows up. And it takes his friend, a good friend, Nathan, to come to him and wake him up out of this self-deception, out of his lies and manipulation, and, and just he's trapped himself in his sin. That's verse 13. But then in verse 14, he says, because of this, because you disregarded God's law and because you disregarded essentially God's heart, you broke his heart, that son that was born through this adultery will die. This is a really, really difficult passage. Why? One, theologically, I mean, you got to wrap your arms around this. How, why does God do this? Why would God do such a thing? I mean, Nathan said God had forgiven him. Then why this type of suffering that reaches so deep? It's almost like he's tearing his heart apart. Secondly, I mean, it's really personal. My own wife and I, um, we, uh, we've been through four miscarriages. And anyone here, I mean, I know there are a lot of people here 
um, if you're married, if you've been trying to have children, and um, you understand every one of those, we lost a total of about seven children. All of them were hard. I mean, I'm talking on the floor, in your bed, I can't move difficulty. <clears throat> Each one of them, painful. Um, you know, when Angela was pregnant with my son David, um, at that point, we had pretty much given up having children. And if you know anything about my history, I mean, we love children. I ran a camp for children and for youth for decades. And so that's, that was really my only touch point with ministry in an active way. And when Angela was pregnant with David, it was really hard for me personally to get really excited about it. So week after week, I was like, this is going to be the week when the shoe, the shoe drops. And we just, I just assumed, my wife would be like, we just passed the first trimester. Well, we lost a kid after that one time. And so it was just really hard for me to engage there personally and, um, and I struggled with that because every week I was just kind of waiting. And you do this for 10 months, it shapes you, you see? Um, and, um, you know, David, we named him David because he was the eighth child. The actual <laughs> King David was the eighth child. Uh, um, and uh, he was born through a weakness and in weakness. And we said, well, that's, that's what we're going to name him when he was born. Um, thirdly, I know that because of this, I mean, we had a ton of people around us during this time. And, um, but I know that there are women in this room um, who haven't had a lot of people around them, and they are suffering silently. I know there are people that's in this room. It doesn't even have to be in this context. You're just, you're just in a lot of suffering. You've suffered something. It could be something, I'm talking real trauma, right? And, and you've done it silently. So passages like this are really, really difficult to preach, and yet they're in the Bible. You can't overlook it. How do you develop poise, a poise to confront the most painful moments of your life? How do you develop uh, the poise to process even the most painful moments in your life without turning bitter, without despairing? I mean, for David and for us, we're going to see three things then today. I mean, I can't do justice to the feelings and the, the suffering that actually takes place in this passage. But... I can pull out three lessons um, about suffering, what it is, how you respond to it, and how do you actually recover. That's what we're going to look at today. First, what is, what is suffering? Verse 15, it says that the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born uh, to David, and he became ill. In verse 16, so David's pleading with God, and he's fasting, and he's praying, and he spent nights on the ground Verse 17, the elders of that household, they stood beside David to get him up from the ground, but he refused. He refused to eat. He wouldn't eat any food with them. Why? Well, why was he on the ground? Part of the reason is because this is a posture of prayer. It's a posture of humility. A lot of Near Eastern and ancient uh, cultures, as well as Eastern cultures, the lower you bow, for instance, shows and demonstrates a level of respect. And it's David is on the ground. So he, there's a humble posture here. There's a prayer posture. But notice the elders, they're trying to get him up. They were certainly not trying to get David to stop praying. So why? Why was he on the ground? It's because he was crushed. He was just so defeated, crushed, on the ground, on the floor, writhing around, wrestling with God. David, in a sense, is saying, I'm the one who deserves to die here. I mean, if my son dies, I'm dead. I'm as good as dead. Parents, you know, when your child is sick, you've been through this a million times over 10, 15 years, 20 years, 
And some of your children may have suffered, I mean, some big, serious illnesses. You know, if you could do anything to take that illness away from that child, if you could take it on yourself, you would. This is David saying, this child, his infant child is suffering and dying, and he's saying, I'm the one who deserves to die. I should be there. Sometimes that suffering, that pain, that grief is so great, it crushes you. And when you lose somebody, we'd rather take their place, we say. I mean, your love for that person. So we can't stand. He can't move. That's where David is. Look, in in Western cultures, death is like a sobering experience. You stand around, and if you've ever been to a funeral, and they're lowering the casket into the ground, there's crying. There may be some weeping. If you go to a viewing, there's some weeping. There's some crying. But we're taught in Western cultures to internalize that pain. We're taught to be strong, to hold, hold your posture, hold your poise. In the Eastern culture, in the Near Eastern culture, in the ancient culture, you have to hold people back from jumping and throwing themselves onto a funeral pyre, and that's David. But then, this is David. He's, our, he's the chosen king. This is the man after God's own heart, and it happened to him. What does this passage teach you? A couple things. One, because we're sinners, because of sin in general, it's just broken the world. If you don't die young, at some point in your life, you are going to suffer. You're going to experience on the ground, on the floor, writhing in pain, suffering. You're going to at some point in life. So let me, I mean, if it happened to David in a sense, and David was the king, he was the chosen king, he was, he was a man after God's own heart. If it can happen to him, and God's got his eyes on David, it can happen to you. So let me speak to you like a brother. Let me speak to you like a, like a father, one of the older people here in this room. Because of sin in general, because of the curse of sin, because of the brokenness that comes from sin, life is designed to crush you. Life is defined, designed to test every foundation that you think you're standing on as solid ground. That means you're going to lose people that you love. I mean, the finality of it, for good, at the least, that's what's going to happen in your life. Some of you have lost people. I've lost, I've lost a father at five. There are people who've lost their parents. You understand. That tr- I mean, you cannot expect it. Even if you're expecting it, it's like a shock. It just kind of, it's not even, it, it punches you in the face and then kind of eases you into just a world of like chaos for I don't know how many years. So some of us are going to lose people that we love. David, I mean, this is the chosen king. He's on the ground because death doesn't care who he is. Life doesn't care who he is, Right? Life doesn't, life is designed to crush who he is. But then, all of a sudden, he gets up. He gets up. His servants are amazed and they're confused. I mean, when he was alive, you were writhing around on the floor, you were wrestling on the ground, but why do you get up? God is giving us today an amazing resource to show us. On one hand, we're all sinners, and we live in a broken world that has just been devastated by sin in general. And so because of sin, we're all sufferers. We're all sufferers. But on the other hand, it's actually possible. There's a resource here in this text that shows us it's possible to get up. How? Well, it depends on what you do. It depends on what you're doing when you're down there on the ground, on the floor. 
So how do you respond? That's the second point. How do you respond in suffering? There are three things that David grasped when he was on the ground. And because he grasped these things, he was able to get up. He was actually able to find strength again and recover. First, he learned, this is really important, he learned that his suffering is not a punishment. It's not a reaction for his sins. There are times when we suffer as a direct result of our sins. Don't get me wrong. There are times when there are things that happen because essentially it's not like you asked for it, not that kind of stuff. I'm saying that there are things that happen as a direct result, right? For instance, you steal, you get caught, you go to jail, right? That's a direct reaction. That's not the kind of suffering we're talking about here, right? David here learned that his suffering is not a punishment for his sins. Um, Remember, David had an affair with Uriah's wife. That's one of his best friends. And he gets her pregnant. And in order to come out clean, what does he do? He arranges to have that friend of his murdered in battle, killed in battle, along with other people. And it looked like he got away with it. But God saw all of it. And he sends Nathan, Nathan's a prophet, to confront David, and David repents. Last week, if you were here last week, we looked at David's prayer, his psalm of repentance after this particular narrative. And verse 13, which we read today, it pretty much sums up that psalm, Psalm 51. I've sinned against the Lord. Meanwhile, Bathsheba, she's pregnant. He takes her in as his wife. She, gets, she, gets, she uh, has a child, that's David's child, It was this infant that was struck by God. That's what the text says. Now, when you read this cursory, when you read this superficially, you may conclude, well, this is God seeking justice for what he's done. This is God seeking punishment, justice for David. And we say, well, there it is. I knew it. Metro is no different from any other church. That fire and brimstone God of the Bible who's always angry, always cruel, It's why I can't believe in a God like this. Look, you need to read this passage more carefully, and that's why we're here. In verse 13, God says through Nathan, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but. Now, you need to think about that. Meditate on that a little bit. In the Old Testament, when he says, whenever you hear the phrase, the Lord has taken away your sin, that that meaning is very, very clear. That means forensically, legally, you are no longer responsible. You are no longer held liable. There is no justice nor retribution that will be taken out on you for what you have done. The Lord has literally taken that guilt, taken that sin, and has taken it away so it is no longer making you liable, right? Nathan says, you are not going to die. God has forgiven you. You are not going to die because if he dies, that would have been justice. It was a capital crime, multiple capital crimes that David had committed in that moment. When he had Uriah killed, when he got Bathsheba pregnant. Nathan says first, you're not going to be punished. The Lord is not holding you liable. You are not going to die. But it's also very clear. This is the second thing. When Nathan says in verse 13, you are not going to die, then he says in verse 14, but. He says, you're forgiven. You're not going to die, but your son will die. What does that mean? It means there must be another reason for a son's death. But at the least, it's not justice. It's not punishment. Well, if it's not, then why does he make him suffer so much? You see, if David believed that his current suffering was a punishment for what he did, he would never have been able to get off the ground. He would have thrown himself off a cliff. You see that? 
That guilt would have been overbearing, overwhelming, and, and he would never have been able to get off the ground. The reason why, what, the entire, if you look at the Old Testament, the entire book of Job, which is a book in the Old Testament, very famous passage, very famous book. It's written to refute Job's friends. The whole book was written around the counsel of Job's friends. Job was a godly man, but God allows for tremendous suffering to happen to Job. He allows it. And Job's friends, their view is a common view, a very worldly view, even though they come as people of God. Uh, they basically say their view is this. If you live right, then, you're, then God's going to bless you. If you live a good life, then God is going to give you a good life. And so if you have a bad life, then you must have done something wrong. You must be in sin, and God is demonstrating his retribution or his justice. This is punishment for you. But what happens if you try to live right and you're just crushed like Job? Either A, you're going to say, well, I deserve it. There's going to be a lot of, you're going to hate yourself. There's going to be a lot of self-pity. Or B, you're going to say, I don't deserve this. I've been trying to live right. And you're going to hate God or you're going to hate somebody else. You're going to blame somebody else for it. Life is always going to be confusing when you come with that worldview, if you hold to that view, because either you're going to hate yourself or you're going to hate God. Because you're never going to be able to avoid the suffering. It's going to happen. You see that? Some of us, I mean, we've been there. As a pastor, after, what, 11 years now here uh, at Metro, I think suffering is probably one of the single greatest reasons for why people abandon God. Forget about abandoning church. It's one of the greatest reasons why people just kind of sift away from God. And most people, we do a little bit of both. We hate ourselves a little bit, and we hate God. And it's subtle. It's like very, very subtle. We do, we do, we kind of inch away from him. We're not going to just kind of drastically walk away, but we inch away from him relationally before we inch away from him geog geographically. Before we stop going to the church, we distance ourselves in a lot of different ways. We're very, very... If you really think about it, that's what we do. And so we live very powerless lives because we ultimately never got off the ground. We're still metaphorically still on the ground. I'm going to give you a phrase. We're going to say a lot. By faith. Only by faith can you believe what Nathan said to David. When you're enduring, I mean, some of us right now, we're in it. And I know. It's hard to see. When you're in that, it's dark. And it's just really, forget about the stress and the pressure. You're, it's like you're swimming in a sea of just chaos and darkness and you just kind of let yourself go a little bit, right? We're in it. And only by faith then can you believe what Nathan actually said to David, that you're not being punished right now for what you did. Well, then why do you go through this? Well, the second thing that David learned when he was on the ground is that suffering is surgery, a heart surgery. God isn't trying to hurt David. God isn't trying to break David. Well, I mean, he took away his child, Right? I mean, how can you say that? The difference between a serial killer, <clears throat> the difference between a serial killer and a doctor or a surgeon is what? They're both holding knives. They're both somewhat skilled. Is that one is trying to hurt you and kill you. The other is trying to save you. God is trying to heal David through this brokenness. It's hard for us to kind of grasp that and the why of that. Nathan says in verse 14, because by doing this, this adultery, this murder, 
literally in Hebrew, what he says is, and we read this in the text, because you have shown contempt for the Lord, the son will die. You see the word contempt, it means to take something lightly, to completely dismiss something. It's actually the opposite of giving glory to something. The word glory is kavod. Contempt is the opposite word in a sense. When you show glory, when you demonstrate glory, when you take glory in something, you are sensing the reality of something. You're sensing God's reality. You're sensing the weight of his beauty, the weight of his brilliance. It's heavy. It's weighty in your life. And it's so weighty, it actually shapes you, kind of contorts you. It shapes the way you live. To treat God then less real, to dismiss that heavy presence, that weightiness of his beauty and his, and his holiness in his life is to show then utter contempt. Now, doesn't mean it's because you didn't know. Maybe you knew a lot about God. Maybe you know a lot about God. Maybe you've learned a lot. Maybe you went to school teaching you about God, but that knowledge hasn't changed you. It hasn't shaped you the way you live your current reality. Maybe you even feel a little bit. You're moved once in a while, but it's not weighty enough to change the way you live in those patterns that you live in your life. You see that? It hasn't shaped you in that way. Malcolm Gladwell is one of my favorite authors. He's a New York Times best-selling author. He wrote a book called Blink. It was, I think, his second like, big book that he's written. And I'm just going to paraphrase one part. He refers to this marriage counselor in the book who, after observing a couple, and that's what he does for a living, he just counsels marriages, but after having so many counseling experiences and examples in his life, he can just watch a couple in silence, their voices are muted. He's got these brainwave things that are on them, and it's kind of scrolling through, and he's, he, can, he used to monitor them. But he says, I can just watch them. And after three minutes, or it's like two or three minutes or something like that, he can predict whether or not this marriage is going to make it. What does he see? What is he looking for? He says one of the things that he's looking for is whether or not the husband and the wife are in an argument, and they demonstrate contempt for each other. He says, that's the death knell. When I see that, it's over. Almost every couple that shows contempt, almost every marriage where there's contempt in the marriage, it ends in failure. Nathan here, he says to David, you have shown contempt for God. You are relationally bound together by a covenant. This love-binding promise, this life-binding promise, and you dismissed it. You, you are, you've not seen the weightiness of it. You've kind of walked away from it. You've abandoned his love. You've abandoned his honor. You've abandoned his love for you, his delight in you, his embrace for you. And so you've distanced yourself. You've divorced yourself from God. What kind of man would take another man's wife and then take his life? Either you don't believe in God or God's beauty and his brilliance and his love and his law. They're just concepts that never really entered into your soul and shaped your life. And so you dismissed God, you showed contempt for God. Instead, you've been captivated by power and your lusts and your wealth and your skills and your wiles and your maneuvering. I mean, he could have seen Bathsheba taking that bath from a distance and walked away from it. But why can't any of us walk away from the things that we want? Why can't you walk away from the things that you want? Because we're all slaves to our desires. That's what the Bible says. Abraham, in the Old Testament, first book of the Bible, Abraham in Genesis, he waited for decades for a child. He finally gets that child. It's Isaac. Through him, God's going to redeem the world. But then God says, I want you to surrender that son. I want you to offer that son as a sacrifice. I mean, it just ripped him apart. It tore him apart. We talked about this passage in our series. 
It just completely tore him apart. But he obeyed. Why? Because God's brilliance, his wisdom, that calling of God, it was heavy in his life. He didn't have to be goaded into it. He had to be coerced into it or cajoled into it. Because if he was, it's because he was a slave. But he wasn't. He obeyed. Why? Because that heavy brilliance of God was so weighty for him, he didn't become a slave. Parents, do you know? Parents, do you know that every modern scholar and counselor will tell you that when you make your children the center of your life, then your work will revolve around that child, your church will revolve, your, your experience of church and your church life will revive, revolve around that child. Everything that you do actually revolves around your children. And it pleases you at first to please them. But you must know, because the weight of your own meaning and your own glory and your own joy has taken over the glory of God, you will press that weight then onto your children. It's going to suffocate them under that weight because you are not as gracious as God. You are not as wise as God. And so you will suffocate them and crush them under the weight of your own expectations and you will ruin your children and because you are a slave, they'll become slaves. Because you are weak, they will become weak. You see that? Because you're a slave, you're going to make them a slave to all sorts of things. It all begins with what? A contempt and a dismissal of God. God doesn't just get pushed to the periphery. He just gets completely dismissed. You see that? Nathan says to David, you are forgiven, but you need to be healed. You've gone so far. You have, you have shown utter contempt for God. You've pushed him completely away. And your life is spiraling down, which is why you've committed murder. You need to see that with your own eyes and experience that to understand how far you've gone. And so this pain, the suffering, because you are a chosen king, Yes, on one hand, you are forgiven. I'm lo- I love you. I've never left you. But look at you, your loneliness and your brokenness and that lack of kingliness, that character that's missing in your life, the cowardice and the deceit and the manipulation and the self-righteousness that's all wrapped in that. You need to be healed because otherwise your life will continue to roll back. More people will die. More people will suffer around you. And even though you may not die, if this kingdom and this world is going to be redeemed through you, then you need to experience, you need to come back. You're getting almost a visual inner perspective of the pain and the picture of how dead you are in your sin. Because death is separation and it's painful. Death is final and it's painful. It's it's over. So David, he falls to the ground and he's pleading and he's praying. You've ever been there? I mean, there are people in this room and they're saying, man, I've tried that already. Pastor, I've tried that. I pleaded and I prayed. I pleaded with God. I wrestled with God. Nothing happened. God will not help me. I can't trust God. And that's even if he exists. It's like he doesn't exist. Friends, that's what God is trying to heal David from. David, God stopped being a reality in his life. And he had to uproot the sin that is so deep and has rooted itself in him. Ah. That's what he was trying to heal him from. The reason why we say, well, I can't trust a God that allows this kind of stuff, it's the same reason why David abandoned God in the first place. Distrust. 
contempt. The moment you say that, you're saying, I'm showing contempt. I'm dismissing this. We need to be healed of that. God must have told David at some point, you see it in this passage, I need to take your son. He's not going to suffer anymore. He's going to be with me. I'm taking him into eternity with me. But it's going to feel like death for you. It's going to feel like your heart is being ripped apart so I can give you a new heart. You're going to heal. You're going to be free again. Did it work? Yes, it worked. Verse 18, the child dies. Verse 19, David realizes that and he asks, is he dead? They say, yes, it happened. What happens? Verse 20, he gets up. Scholars say up until this point, David was using everyone. Bathsheba was just an object. Uriah was just a barrier. Joab was a tool. David wasn't a servant anymore. He was a consumer. A lot of us here, we're just consuming. And anytime we don't get what we want, whether it's in the church or at work or at home, complain, complain, complain. You're falling into that right now. A lot of us are like that towards God. We're like that towards the church. But David, for David here, his life changes. When he gets up, his servants are confused. Verse 21, when the child was alive, you fasted and you wept, but now he's dead and you get up and you're ready to eat. Verse 22, David says, well, when the child was alive, I thought maybe the Lord will let him live. Maybe I suffered enough and I'm good now. We do that, don't we? I'm good. I get it now. I got it, guys. A lot of you, you've been through a lot and you're like, I'm good now. I get it now. I've learned a lot now, right? Because we still want to tell and dictate to God on our terms when something should start, when something should end, because we think we're still wiser. Parents, you see your children, right? What's that little thing? That's an electrical socket. Don't put your fingers there. What do they do? No, no, no. I need to do this. That's what they say. I need to. They don't say, I want to do it. Well, you know, like, why, Dad? They say, no, no, no. It's wise for me to do this. They're like, I must do this, right? And it's like suffering for them when you try to tell them when you block it, when you put those little things in there to prevent them from putting anything in the socket. It's like, it's like the world has ended, you know? That's us. That's us. Robert Alter. Well, David says in verse 23, now that he's dead, can I bring him back again? Robert Alter, he's a famous biblical scholar, liberal scholar. I think I've said this multiple times, but nobody like Robert Alter when it comes to the understanding of the ancient Hebrew. So even all conservatives, we all read him. He says that this is the first time in a long time where David is just helpless. He's just broken and helpless. Before, he was addicted to power. Now he's just completely vulnerable. He's on the ground. And this sets the pace for the rest of his life. He's been torn down, but he's been freed. His life has changed. Before, he was addicted to power. He was addicted to just his desires. Now he's just humble. I'm going to say it like this. One day, everyone is going to experience something so painful, it's going to throw you to the ground. And there you're going to see the link between your suffering and God's wisdom and your character. And if all those three things come together, there will be joy in your life. That joy will sustain. Suffering is the crucible by which God builds wisdom and character and kingliness unto greatness. God says, it pains me to do this. You're going to understand. This is God. It pains me to do this. But this is surgery 
because you have something that is life-threatening. And most of the time, we are not going to know. We are going to have no idea what God is trying to free us from. It's not until months go by, maybe years go by, maybe decades, when you look back and say, okay, now I see. He was tearing away the thing that I wanted most apart from him. People have been trying to tell me, maybe. People try to, you know, and, and, uh, and I just dismissed it. And that's made me anxious. This, this thing has made me anxious. It's made me depressed. It's made me lonely and proud and sinful and dismissive, murderous, hate, right? Adulterous, lustful, greedy. He's breaking the things that were breaking me. Uh, because I, I was the way I was. I was breaking things. I was breaking relationships. But he was breaking the things that were breaking me. So you read this call to worship at the start of worship, Psalm 39, an amazing prayer because at the end, basically the psalmist says, you know, get away from me so I can have some peace in my life. Just get away from me so I can have some peace before I die. And then the psalm ends. There's no peace. There's no praise at the end. That's why this psalm is so good. It's, it's why God put it in the Bible. You know why? Because it tells us that God knows us. He hears us when we are just raw and unfiltered and just desperate and on the ground and writing all sorts of lies are coming into our hearts and we're, we're kind of tempted to believe it and we're just kind of talking to ourselves in our hearts and, and we're just desperate and raw and in pain and on the ground. I mean, of course, it's not all good stuff. But to know that God hears us, to know that he understands. I mean, why else would it be in the Bible? And look at David. Even though David is in this terrible place spiritually, he doesn't fake it anymore. He's just on the ground. His servants are like, oh, my gosh, he's going to do something desperate. He's a mess functionally, physically, but directionally. He gets it. He now knows and never stops from there. It's that really proud person that says, well, because I can't see a reason for my suffering, there must be no reason. It must not be true. There must not be a good reason. Terrible, it's terrible logic because if you have a God that is powerful enough to stop the suffering and you may not see any redeeming part of that situation right now, then you need to trust that God, if he is infinitely powerful, he's infinitely wise enough to have reasons for why he doesn't answer your prayers because he is a God of love. Do you trust that? Do you trust that? What does David do on the floor? He knew that it wasn't punishment. He knew that it was surgery in his heart to become a wiser person, a fuller person, a deeper person, even a more joyful person. I mean, you see it in Psalm 51. You see that latter half of Psalm 51, seven or eight verses. He says, I'm going to be a worshiper again. I'm going to be joyful again. He knows, but only if one you're on the floor and you're crying out to God. Two, it's just really real. It's really personal. And three, you're still clinging to God no matter the outcome because the primary outcome is you are back in the Lord again. You are intimate with God again. So you pray and you pray that you have a wisdom that God has, but you may not know the answer to what God is doing or why he's doing it. You're just trusting. You're just submissive. This part's really important. Verses 17 to 19. His friends, they're trying to help him, but that, that help, it's not even effective until verse 20 when that recovery, that surgery is complete, when that recovery finally begins. Religious people, we tend to be really stoic in suffering. You don't want to show that you have need. You don't want to show that you are weak. Irreligious people, they don't have problems showing that they're weak. 
but they mourn without hope, right? They don't believe that there's any help. What's the point of, of trying to put up pretenses? There is no hope. The gospel teaches us that God knows, he understands, he wants to hear you. He wants to see that rawness. So you can mourn, and it is, it, you gotta be real, but you can mourn with hopefulness. Because you can trust that God is gonna work through this. I don't know the outcome. I don't even know why. I may not know why, but I do know that God works through it. For David, his son dies, but he's renewed. He recovers. He gets up. How did he recover? That's our last point. I know this is a little bit long, but I have to, I, I told myself, I was wrestling myself, do I just cut it short? But we gotta do this. Some of us, we're still on the floor. How do you get up? David when he gets up, he tells, uh, he tells a little secret. I mean, how are you able to trust God in a way that propels you to joy? David must have heard two assurances, and we need to hear those two assurances too. What are they? Two phrases. Verse 22, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. And then in verse 25, he sent word through, the, through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. David named him Solomon, God sends Nathan and says, name him Jedediah. We need to do the same in both cases. What do I mean by that? First, he will not come to me. I will go to him. Why is he able to say that? Nathan assures David, you are pardoned. That was the start. He trusted God's love. And so Psalm 51, that beautiful psalm of repentance, he begins with appealing to the unfailing love of God. He trusted in God's love. He trusted his wisdom. He's saying, one day, even this pain is going to get swallowed up by a greater joy that's going to come. I mean, it, right now it sounds horrible. It feels awful. But, you know, unlike any other religion, the God of the Bible doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. The God of the Bible says to Abraham, he says to David, redemption's not going to go forward unless your son dies. Your son must die. Offer him up. Abraham offers his son, but then his son is spared. God says, and, and Abraham trusted him. It was brutal. Three days of just brutal journey up a mountain to sacrifice his son, but he's spared. God says to David, your son must die, and he does. So he's separated from his father. He, look at the agony of David. But David never even got to know his son. And, and God essentially says, he's with me, right? Verse 22, what he's really saying is David's going to go to see him. He must have been assured that he will see him again. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, there was not just a partial temporary separation from the father. David temporarily separated from his son. Jesus Christ was completely separated from the father, he was completely separated. And remember, Jesus is in the Father. The Father is in Jesus. There was complete union. So when he died, this ultimate agony, this forensic separation that took place, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the ultimate agony. This is the ultimate desperation of the soul. So much that Jesus on the cross says what? I'm thirsting. You think he was thirsting just for water? He was craving the one thing that was sustaining his life and his soul up until this point. 
Before he goes to the cross at Gethsemane, what does he say? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In other words, Jesus Christ was on the ground. He was wrestling on the ground. He stayed on the ground. I mean, de- death, that's, that's, that's what he was doing. Right? He was wrestling. He was beaten up. And, and he's wrestling with God and he's praying Take this wrath away from me. But then he says, but not my will, yours be done. He obeyed. He was submissive. He trusted. Even as God legally had separated from him, he trusted God to the point of death. There was no contempt. The weight of the heavy brilliance of God was still there, even as God had forensically abandoned his son and rejected him on the cross. So when Jesus fell, he fell to his death. And he fell to the utter depths. And he was so far on the ground that they buried him. And he stayed there. Death is finality. Death is separation. Jesus says, it is finished. The debt is paid. It's over. But when he got up, he rose to glory. Jesus Christ, I and mean, this is the son, there was, he experienced endless separation, the agony of separation on the cross. But think about this. Look at David. He's suffering. How much more would God, David is the father looking at his son being separated from him. How much more would God the father suffer watching his son? You would say we would take his place and yet he turned his face from him. God himself suffering complete separation and agony too. Scholars would poetically say that the Trinity was torn apart. It didn't really, it wasn't really, it was forensically, but, you know, it was torn apart. Does God hear us in our pain? Does God understand our suffering? Only the God of the Bible understands. He not only understands what it's like to suffer, but he suffered. No one ever lost a child like God lost his own son. And to the degree that you see, to the degree that you believe that God sent his own son to die for you, that God himself would place his own life to suffer for you, that's the assurance that God is in your suffering and that through your suffering, through your brokenness, when Jesus suffered and died, people said nothing good can come from this. Maybe that's what you're saying in your life, but that's what God does. He works through suffering. He works through brokenness. He works through your sin. He works through the ugliest to bring about a greater beauty, a greater joy, a greater victory. And if you believe that he did that through Jesus and through somebody like David, he can do that for you. What's the assurance? Jesus received all the punishment. That's why David was forgiven. That's why we can be forgiven here. That's why we can be reconciled to God and intimate with God because Jesus Christ received all the punishment that we deserve so we can have the reconciliation and intimacy and love and embrace that Jesus deserved. So we receive the blessing and the love and the pardon for sin. Otherwise, God is not, God is not just Sin would win if he would just let us go. Even if he lets one of your smallest sins go, sin wins. You see that? So either God is love and God is just so much that he's willing to sacrifice his own son. It's the son that he loved for you. Or God is not loving and he's not just. And Jesus Christ is willing. And Jesus Christ basically died for no reason. You see that? And yet he was willing to suffer. 
Look at Jesus. He was willing to suffer. He was willing to die. He was glad for the joy set before him. That was a prayer for the city today. For the joy set before him. He was glad to die for you. Do you believe this? I mean, more than it just moving you, do you get it? Because if you do, then God becomes the source of your joy. You will unhook from something else as a source of your joy. God becomes a source of your joy. And when suffering comes, it drives you into a deeper joy, the way, the way roots extend deeper into the depths during drought or in fire or in the desert to find an everlasting well of a loving and just God who saves into eternity. It makes us more like Jesus. It shapes our character. The reality is that, look, we're all sinners. We're all sufferers. But can you suffer with poise? Jesus didn't suffer to take away all of our suffering or any suffering in our lives, but so that when we suffer, it's not a punishment, it's not to ruin you, but it will grow you, shape you, change you into a greater intimacy with God that only Jesus enjoyed himself. It's going to make you more like Jesus. That's going to shape you. That weightiness of his beauty and brilliance will shape you to make you more like, like his child. And so if you look at Jesus, the ultimate suffering on the cross, why did he stay there? Because he says, if you die, then it's like I'm dead. Actually, he said, so that you wouldn't die, I'll die. That's What's going to get you off the ground? Well, there's one more thing. We said there were three things that he learned. One more thing that gets him up to, and allows him to recover. Verse 24, he says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and they slept together. And Bathsheba gave birth to a son. They named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, which means, Jedidiah means the beloved of God. He delighted in Jedidiah. This is amazing. David had several wives. You have to understand this. He had several children. But God gives David and Bathsheba this, this kind of prostitute-ish person, disgraced woman. He gives them both another child, another son. You need to know that Solomon, the word Solomon comes, is derived from the word shalom, right? Kind of sounds the same, Right? It's a holistic peace. David is saying, I'm going to name him Solomon because it's my way of saying to God, I'm at peace. I'm at peace. But God says, no. I want you to name him Jedediah. The Lord loves. The Lord delights in this child. Of all the marriages, this is the marriage he chose. Of all the children, this is the one, the one that suffered, the one that was ugly and disgraced to save the world. That means, you know what that means? David screwed up. Yes, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. But the result is this. Through this brokenness comes salvation. Christ was born out of Solomon. You get that? Through that line. So not only was David chosen, and not only was he forgiven, he was redeemed. Bathsheba was, a, was the scarlet letter woman. David is the adulterer and the murderer of friends. Who's going to be a friend to that? And yet Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, came from that line. You know what that means? It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you came from. In Jesus Christ, you are Jedediah because you come from Jesus. You are intimately tied to him. 
the Lord delights in you. The Lord loves you. And if Jesus Christ, his own son, suffered, not because he did anything wrong, but because of God's amazing wisdom and plan, because of his embrace of Jesus, and yet the gospel, that he's going to bring a plan of redemption to fruition through all that brokenness, that truth is going to bring you delight and love when things are confusing and dark. Look, man, I've been through like three major traumas in my life. I've been through the death of a father that I hardly knew as a result, and a lot of suffering came from that. I've been through the betrayal of the closest friends, and it just tore me apart. Some of you have been through that, right? And I've been through the loss of children. But Some of you are saying, man, I've been through it, and I've been in sin for a while, but you're here. I'm here, right? We're here. Your sin, that life brought you here. God delights in his people, and he will use even your sin, yes, even that brokenness, any weakness, to make you a delight for his kingdom. Can that truth, can you anchor into that? If you do, it'll give you poise through any circumstance. Sorry for the length of this. We had to do this today. Let's pray together.